Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Impact of Influence, the Murdoch family murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. So grateful you're here. And it's weird because we're in the studio together, which is nice. Uh, Seton and Dwayne and Matt all together. Yes, it's, it's nice to be back in one location. It's great. And we uh, want to thank you again. And of course, you go to Murdoch Podcast on Facebook, MurdochPodcast.com, MattHarrisPodcast at gmail.com. Here is one comment. From Jamie Blanc, it has become very biased. I really liked the podcast at first before the trial started, but Matt is just so biased in Alec Murdoch's favor, it's hard to stomach now. He tries to say he's not biased, but everything he says, especially his delivery and his tone, constantly prove otherwise. If he wants to prove to the listener he isn't biased, he should do a deep dive, re-listen to the past few episodes, and hire an acting coach to explain how delivery can affect the meaning of his words. We don't have that kind of budget. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This one, great coverage. I like Matt and Seton's coverage a lot, and I'm picky about who I listen to, but on the Murdoch front, I like their insight, and the library is great if you want to go back and learn more about a particular portion of the saga. and love seeing Matt on Court TV. And I don't have it in front of me, but someone uh, commented that they wish I would stop saying that I'm on Court TV. But here's the thing. When I'm on Court TV, they plug the podcast, and so I like to plug them when I'm doing the podcast. It's a little... Yeah, scratch your help. back, we scratch yours, yeah. it's all good. And uh, this one says, interesting and educational. Best of all, genuine starts out amateur, first episodes. We acknowledge, yes, that's <laughs> true. We don't argue, but without a motive, and the whole series is without motives, beyond sharing information and knowledge. The expert guests are excellent, especially former DA John Snyder. I'm sure he'll appreciate that. So let's move into our guest for today's episode. Yes, we are really excited to have Will Folks, who is the founder of Fitz News and has been covering this story from the get-go. And I've been wanting to interview you for a while on this podcast, and it's kind of a funny story. The first time I reached out to you, I asked, and you gave me a hard no. You sent me a meme. What was the meme of the heart? Oh, the heart no? Yes. <laughs> it got him in a bad mood. Yes. Wow. Well, well, Circumstances but, change. They do. Um, so, Will, folks, tell us a little bit about your background and how you started Fitz News and why you started Fitz News. Yeah, sure. I'm Will, folks. I'm the founding editor of FitzNews.com. It's a news outlet that started back in 2006 so i guess we're what what does that make us 17 years old something like that yeah i'm bad at the math here we go yeah Yeah. south carolina math man (laughs) um but yeah you know it focused mostly on political news at the beginning that was sort of my you know prior history i was a spokesperson for uh one of the former governors of south carolina mark sanford before i want to point out before 
his hike down the uh, Appalachian Trail. <laughs> rest of, you, for those non-South Carolina people, you might want to Google Mark Sanford and uh, hiking hike the trail. The trail yeah. Right, or, or just Google hiking the Appalachian Trail and what it what it's become a euphemism for. But right, um, right. But yeah, the the site was mostly focused on political stuff, and obviously in South Carolina, there's a some overlap between politics and the judiciary, and clearly there's overlap between the judiciary. And um, our criminal justice uh, system, and and so that was sort of where I guess the inter interplay between what I used to do and I guess what I'm doing now. I guess that's sort of where it all started. Is this the biggest story, the Murdoch story? Is this the biggest one you've ever covered, or is there something else that sticks in your mind? No, I mean this is hands down the biggest, and will probably wind up being the biggest. You know, you think about all the layers that are involved in this. You know, you've got this. A gruesome double homicide. You've got an influential family. You've got uncertainty as to what precisely happened. You've got this drug connection hanging out there. Um, there's just so many layers to it. So I think when you add all those layers on it, it's almost like a a widening blast radius of impact. And so, um, you know, I think that's kind of that's kind of how I look at it with with all these different components. It's just definitely the biggest thing we've ever covered, and I think it'll probably wind up being the biggest thing we ever cover it was because i i'm sure you were thinking like we were we started the, our pod just a week or so after the the murders not knowing what we were doing and started winging it little did we know we never would have guessed we would have had easy an episode a week for two years and plus never would have thought that uh the 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 twists and turns were amazing did did you have any idea no, I mean not at all. And I remember we did a we did an episode of one of our um, weekend review shows on Fitz News, and I remember we started it walking through the media, um, I guess the media lot and the media setup out front of the uh, courthouse. And I think there's something like 300 media outlets covering this thing, and you walk through it, and it's surreal because it's kind of like you know we remember when when this started, and you know so there's a lot of you know. A lot of bittersweet uh, emotions, I guess, go into it because, you know, you want to be proud about what you're doing. And, and I certainly am. But, you know, on the flip side of it, it's it's just such a sad situation all around. Absolutely. And well, I have to say that you guys have the primo spot right across from the courthouse with your camper. So, you know, <laughs> you know, you guys can rush back in between testimony and do what you need to do. But I want to get into your sources. You really seem to have amazing sources. How long did it take you to develop these kind of relationships, and how do you go about protecting your sources? Well, I think the biggest thing for Fitz News was was well before the Murdochs, and it, it started with a, a liable case that, that the website was involved in back in 2017. And during some of the discovery on that case, um, there were some folks that had wanted me to cough up some of my sources and you know, I refused to do it, so they took me in front of a judge, and a judge issued an order saying you have to reveal these sources. And you know, still at that point, you know, they had not given me permission, so I declined, and they hauled me into court, uh, basically under threat of jail time. Um, didn't know exactly what was going to happen, but you know, dragged me into court, stood on the stand, and said, "Listen, I do not have permission from these people to reveal who they are, so I can't do it." And I'm sorry. Um, and luckily did not get thrown in jail, but um, it was definitely one of those moments that I think everybody 
watching that case realized, well, wow, if this guy's willing to do that, then he will protect the source. But, you know, I think the bigger thing is not necessarily, you know, a high profile situation like that. I think the bigger thing is just, you know, developing the relationship, the individual relationships where those sources know that what they tell you won't go any further, not just being printed, but won't go any further. And I always say that, you know, the relationships matter to me more than the stories. And if you can actually subjugate being there first or breaking the story to that source relationship, it's just so much more beneficial in the in the long run. Because if you get beat on the story and a source knows you got beat because you protected them, that's going to be one of your best sources forever because they know that you'll put them ahead of your own self-interest. Have you ever felt a source, for lack of a better term, used you? Like they wanted information out to help whatever situation or cause they were working? I would hope most sources are using you because <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the, the nature of the business. I Quid mean, pro quo, right? <laughs> well, I mean, I think, you know, people, people talk to you guys and they talk to us and they talk to other folks covering this because they want information out there. True. Um, and I, I think as long as everybody understands, I guess I call them the rules of engagement. <laughs> as long as everybody understands what the rules of engagement are, and everybody follows those rules. Um, then I think it's fine. I mean, you know, we've got so much, again, on this story that we've covered, and you look back at all the conversations and all the different um, back and forth of, of the evolution of these different stories, and you wonder, oh, wow, are we going to get called uh, to testify? You know, yeah. are we, you know, are they going to want to know in this case, okay, who were your sources? And, you know, it's always, always interesting, that cat and mouse game that everybody plays in this business. Okay, so you've had a lot of scoops, more than anybody else, I would, I would argue. Which sticks out in your mind as your biggest scoop that you've received in this whole Murdoch trial? Well, I mean, I think the biggest one was just confirming the double homicide back on June 8th, confirming who was involved, and then within 48 hours, confirming that Alec Murdoch was a, a person of interest and I've said this before, and I'm not hesitant to say it now, but I was actually authorized to use a different term than person of interest. I was authorized to use the term primary suspect, ended up opting against that based on some conversations with sources in Murdoch's uh, orbit. And, th and that is one thing I do want to point out. You know, I've all, I can't speak for everybody that's worked for my news outlet uh, in the past, but from my perspective, you know, I really do believe in taking, you know, both sides of things, all perspectives. And so, you know, when you get one of Alec Murdoch's attorneys basically saying, hey, you know, you print this, you're going to get sued, you're going to lose, you take that to heart, you know. And obviously we've seen over the course of the last few weeks as this trial has evolved and unfolded, obviously we've seen Alec Murdoch was very much in the circle, as they say. And so... um I think we would have been okay to use the term primary suspect at the time. But again, we opted out of an abundance of caution uh, just to call him a person of interest um, early on. From your vantage point, you're not saying everybody, every article that's ever been written, you want to make sure that everybody is treated fairly that's involved in any of these lawsuits, the murder, et cetera. I, I really do. And, you know, one of the things that, that I always tell people is, is, you know, this news outlet has always had an open microphone policy and, 
the the few folks that initially took advantage of it, I think, were pleasantly surprised to find that, you know, we don't bury criticisms of of our work. Like, I don't block people on social media. I don't, you know, all that crap. Um, yeah. I because I believe in, a dis, you know, having a discussion, having a conversation, having a, a free flow of ideas, and so. But I think people are surprised when they read, you know, that we publish criticism of Fitz News every bit as prominently as Fitz News coverage, um, because I believe that people have the right to see that. And you know what? We haven't been 100 percent right. You know, we had a story that came out last fall about the blue tarp, the, the infamous blue tarp. And our sources were adamant at the time that this was something Alec Murdoch uh, dropped off at Almeida, his parents' house, on the night of the murders. Yeah, we had a discussion and, about that. <laughs> yeah, we did. Yeah, and you know what? It, it turned out it was six days later, and you know, you live and learn, and and so we don't get everything right. But I think it's important to say, you know, yeah, we don't get it right every time. But I, I do think our track record on the story speaks for itself. Absolutely. And I think our willingness to you know, open up to that sort of criticism, I think is also important. Again, unlike some people that just want to bury their heads in the sand when it comes to criticism. No, uh, we, we yeah. feel the same way. I think we're very we like-minded. We have, you know, we've made plenty of mistakes along the way and we've usually just try to fix them in the next episode and own up to our mistakes. So we don't, we don't ever claim that we are perfect. And I think y'all are the same. It must be exhausting. There's some are more personal than others. We just got one that said, uh, oh, no, that, this uh, bad. said, Seton looks like she's just miserable. I see her in the courtroom. She looks miserable. Tell her to put a little smile on her or something. Like that. I, I mean, I said, they, they said I was scowling. And I said, well, you know, you are, li- you are hearing this very gruesome right. testimony about brains at feet. Am I supposed to be smiling from ear to ear? I thought that was really odd. But we don't comment. shy away from those either, even ones that are just ridiculously, and I'm sure you get the same, that are just a personal shot that have nothing to do with what you're doing. Uh, let's move on to where do you want to move next? I want to go to your polls. You've been doing obviously great daily live updates on your website, Fitz News. And you do, you start the day with a daily poll where people can vote on guilt or innocence or undecided. And overwhelmingly people have been saying guilty, but it only takes one and there are some people who are undecided and some that say not guilty. So I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's run, I think the lowest uh, I've ever seen it on the daily polls for, for guilty was in the mid seventies. Um, usually it hovers in the mid to upper eighties. And I think when the prosecution rested its case, uh, we were in the low 90% um, indicating they felt Alec Murdoch was guilty. And and we do ask two questions. We ask, you know, do you think he's guilty of, of the murder of Maggie Murdoch? Do you think he's guilty of the murder of Paul Murdoch? Obviously, it's two separate crimes, whether they happened right on top of each other or or whatever the time timing was. It's it's two separate crimes. And so we ask both questions. But yeah, I mean, it, it's not surprising. I think the the interesting thing to follow will, will be over the coming weeks as, as the defense begins to make its case. And I think they've got some certainly a lot to work with. Um, there were clear flaws in the investigation. I think even um, Chief Keel in, 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 you know, an honest moment will acknowledge that. I'm sure he probably will at some point. Um, SLED did not do um, as, as good a job as they could have done. Um, are those flaws 
big enough to to sink the case? I don't think so. But again, I think Dick Carpootlian will have a lot to work with on the uh, shoddy police work narrative, which is obviously going to be a key of of their defense. And then the other defense I think that he does have a lot to work with is the rush to judgment. And so it'll be interesting to see how he advances that narrative, whether you know he calls us in. You know, I, again, I don't know. Um, but yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see. And and then the other thing though. I do think the compelling um, component for the state in its case was to kind of eliminate a lot of the speculation of, you know, maybe not eliminating the, the, the likelihood or the possibility of a second shooter, but the way that the prosecution linked these guns to the family. Uh, I think that goes a long way in erasing a lot of, uh, I guess, room to maneuver for the defense because if you can't trace the guns to the family, then all sorts of different theories are on the table. But since the guns have been definitively traced to the family, I think that takes a lot of that off the table for the defense because clearly, you know, the same gun that, that killed Maggie Murdoch had been shot and fired on that property uh, multiple times in the past. Um, and those matching cartridges, I think, were key. Uh, so, again, drug dealers... Uh, random vigilantes seeking vengeance. They don't just roll up on a property expecting to find guns waiting for them to use, right? Uh, so I is think it, that was a big, big development for the state. It was. Uh, what I wonder is if the defense will be putting on their experts to debate the science of some of the things that the prosecution has and how that will turn out. Like, I, I'm wondering about the. The, the GPS locations, the, the the phone usage, because we know the phones are tight out there. You lose and stuff. Uh, it will just be expert against expert at some point. I think, yeah, I think you're right. And certainly they're going to have to have somebody throw reasonable doubt into the minds of jurors regarding those shell casings and the matching of those shell casings to the family guns. Because otherwise, I think that just, like I said, it just eliminates a whole range of possibilities from from their theorizing so you've mentioned this whole second shooter scenario and i think that is on the top of a lot of people's mind and now we know that there's a crime scene reenactment person who's going to come and i'm assuming they're going to try to put this in the minds of jurors that it couldn't have been one person what do you think about that uh, yeah then they should because that's a Thing that's been in my mind ever since you know we learned that you know you have these first two shots that that struck uh, Maggie Murdoch one through the abdomen one through her leg and obviously had stippling on them which indicates very close range mm-hmm. you know, three to five feet and then the same thing you've got the same stippling or tattooing on the the shots that killed Paul Murdoch which also indicated you know very close range again between three to five feet and so given the position of the bodies, it does raise the question, okay, these bodies are 30 feet, you know, I'm, I'm not sure the exact distance, but a fair distance apart from each other. Uh, and you're talking about frontal point blank shots um, at close range on both of them. How does that work with, you know, wouldn't one of them see the other and, and run or wouldn't they, you know, just, it definitely opens up possibilities for the defense 
as to there being a possible second shooter. And again, given some of Murdoch's connections, I mean, you go through the call logs and even Sled's own database, there were some interesting calls made that day uh, to some interesting people. And a lot of that ties into the drug angle that we've been exploring since uh, the fall of 2021. Um, Alec Murdoch's connections there, and it just raises a lot of questions that I think the defense could, could really work with. Take a little break and uh, get you ready for some traveling you've got coming up, some international trip where you want to be able to at least get around, right? So you want to learn the language of the country that you're going to. You want to experience it with a little bit of knowledge going in, and you can get a lot of bit of knowledge when you use Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program. It's available on desktop. It can also be used as an app on your phone or tablet. And Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals. You read stories, you participate in dialogues, so you are ready to go. It's the most trusted, time-tested app out there. They've been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Buy Rosetta Stone now, and you never have to pay a renewal fee. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Impact of Influence listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 40% off. That's 40% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 40% off at rosettastone.com backslash today. Yeah, let's talk about this drug angle. So, you know, this has really been highly debated about whether Alec had this drug addiction. And now it appears as if... He did. I mean, both sides are are really pretty much conceding to it. And we heard testimony that Paul was called a little detective and he had texted Alec that Maggie had found some pills in his laptop bag. And yeah. to me, this scenario of this drug addiction seems a little bit, I don't know, it seems more likely that that could be a motive of his addiction and being discovered and not wanting to could be more going to motive than all of these financial crimes. Do you have an opinion on that? Well, I think it it could be a combination. I mean, if you had all of this financial pressure, which I think it was clearly there, and in fact, I think the prosecution closing out its case pointed out that four days before the murders, he's trying to get you know another six hundred thousand out of Palmetto State Bank. They they released some of that information, which again underscored the financial pressure he was over, but or under. But if you've got all of those stressors and strains, and then perhaps you have something that hits on top of it at the wrong time, I could easily see it being a combination of the two, Seton. But I think the the thing that worries me is you you know as well as I do that the the drug addiction. Let's assume for the moment it's legitimate. Fifty k a week is what they're saying. Fifty k a week is what he one was spending on drugs. Hundred thousand one couple of weeks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you start looking at what do those numbers mean, and you start breaking down. Okay, that's ninety something pills a day. Yeah, that's it's just not possible. And again, if you if you look closely, I'm I'm going over the transcript, and we have been all week. Bags of pills were reportedly found by by Maggie Murdoch, not just a couple pills, but a couple right. bags. So, so, you know, these were larger amounts than just recreational use. And again, you start looking at some of these connections between Murdoch, frankly, some of the other folks that were in his orbit, and some of these 
again, I, I don't know what to call them other than drug dealers. And it gets concerning. It does get concerning. And so the question is, was he involved beyond just purchasing drugs? Um, and I think the the answer to that could go a long way in helping us unlock some of the mystery here. The state has even said it, but not in this law, you know, this this trial, but at Rivers and Roberts uh, that have been arrested. They've got Eddie Smith and they've talked about uh, Creighton Waters said in one of the, the hearings uh, where they were, was either Rivers or Roberts, where he's saying it was a whole system that uh, Alec would give to Ed, money to Eddie. Eddie would get the drugs, the dr- Rivers and Roberts would give them to Eddie back up. And his whole line was that he implied that Alec wasn't taking them all. He implied that this was a, a, a system to sell drugs to other parts of the state. That was the, that's what I took from Waters when he was saying that. Did you hear that? It was the same? Well, and, and absolutely. And don't forget what his own attorney had, had said, that it was a, quote, Ozark situation. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so th- this is all here. It's just a question of who's going to put these pieces together. And I know that when we got the, the transcripts from, from the state's timeline, like I said, there were some interesting names in there. And we've been, over the course of the last few days, really diving into some property records tied to those names. Can't wait. Um, oh, yeah, that's going to be good. So, yeah, just trying to, again, advance that narrative. Because we had some of the pieces, again, in the fall of 2021 when we started going down the drug uh, angle. Um, but definitely starting to see a few more puzzle pieces put on the table. And it's so hard, too, because... There could be LLCs out there. There could be all kinds of, uh, you know, uh, collectives that were buying properties and things like that, right? That that can get tricky. I mean, yeah, imagine the people involved in a criminal enterprise trying to conceal detection. Imagine that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I know. That's, that's a new story. Never, never heard of that before. <laughs> well, okay, so I was listening to your Week in Review this morning, and Jen Wood was talking about the timeline and how she needed to hear this and for the state to kind of put it together before she could consider a guilty plea. And she said she thought the testimony tipped the scales for her. And I think a lot of people also felt that way. And so let's just talk about what we think the biggest bombshells were in this timeline that the state presented. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was this specific, vehicle location data when you see his car um first well first of all the timeline uh, of that data absolutely confirmed the previous testimony of of shelly smith for example uh and it shredded alec murdoch's testimony of of being at his parents house for you know up to an hour no he was there for at most 20 minutes but also, you not only that, but you saw where he went on the property. He didn't go straight to the house. That's the key. Yeah. Drives around back to the tree line. And again, this it's a double-edged sword. It, it certainly hurts Alec Murdoch, but it also raises questions about the investigation because why was that property not searched immediately? That seemed crazy to me. Like, really, why did SLED not go search the property or until even, months or, later? Or, or Alec's house. They didn't even do Alec's house to the next day. Yeah. yeah. Crazy. Anyway, yes. Yeah, so that they went down to that that back that little loop de loop to the to the woods. That was big, right? But then again, there 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 is another double edged sword because if you're trying to advance a rush to judgment narrative, mm-hmm. well, clearly they weren't. You know, if they didn't do those searches, 
then they clearly weren't viewing him at that at that moment as the as the primary suspect. And yet again, we had law enforcement sources at the time telling us he was. So none yeah. of it makes sense. Um, and I think a lot of folks, when they when they see inconsistencies like this, it feeds a lot of the suspicion. It feeds a lot of the, the conspiracy. And again, I'm firmly of the belief that this scandal is much bigger than just this one crime. Um, and then when you see, again, inconsistencies like this, it does raise questions. And, you know, you hate it because you want to have faith in the integrity of, of this investigation. And, and for the record, I don't think SLED has any sort of complicity in any of this. I don't think there's anybody at that agency that's, you know, on the take or, or trying to cover something up. I just think there were some key things they should have done they didn't do. Another thing that stuck out to me in this timeline was the twenty. He, he gets to the house. He he doesn't see Maggie and Polly. Rushes back to the kennels, and then it's only what eighteen to twenty seconds before he places the nine one one call. See, that doesn't bother me. That I one. know that's my husband said the same thing when we were talking about it. And on cross, they actually played that twenty seconds, and we sat there and to see timer. how long it was. But to me, that seemed like a really short amount of time to discover both your wife and son and call and say you check for vital signs. Right. Absolutely. And if you check for vital signs, again, why are you completely free of any, any blood, any, you know, that just doesn't make sense. But I'll tell you guys, the thing that really stood out to me this week wasn't anything that came out in court. It wasn't any timeline. It was some of the folks that we spoke to that respond to these sorts of crime scenes. And again, one of those folks we were speaking to, I guess it was uh, Thursday evening, the, the day before this big testimony and the timeline. One of the things they said to us is that, Will, we have to peel them off, their loved ones, have to peel them off, mm. uh, have to pry them off. That when you come up on a crime scene, and I, and I thought about that, I thought about, oh, God forbid, what would I do if it's my wife or one of my kids? Absolutely, they'd have to pry me off. I wouldn't think about what I was coated in or covered in it, you just would want every possible second with that person and you wouldn't be checking so, texts you wouldn't be looking at bikini photos or uh, searching for <laughs> restaurants which is what they apparently he did yeah. in the aftermath of their death i mean you could uh, anything can be written off as you weren't in your right mind yeah, we, we interviewed some 911 operators after we did the 911 call uh about the murders from him and both of them like both have dealt with murders before, and they said you can get someone who is completely doesn't detached from the whole thing. You're like I need to take out the trash. I forgot to take out yeah. the trash. Uh, yeah, you know, one person would just went and lay down on their couch like nothing happened, and but the guy did, and everybody thought he murdered him. Ended up he didn't, but it's just hard to make that call on what that behavior will be. Well, and that's why you don't convict somebody on that. It's just one of the missing pieces. But it, you know, if I'm the defense, I'm like, you, you just don't know what a guy's going to do, right? I mean, that's, that's well, the hope. And what we have seen so much, I don't know if you, if you feel this way, Will, but we've seen so much confirmation bias going into this hearing where people believe one way or the other and you're never going to convince them in either direction. Yeah, if Alex's crying and you believe he's guilty, then he's faking. And if you believe he's innocent, Poor guy, right? No, absolutely. And that's one of the things why we talk about the confirmation bias. I mean, I absolutely, from the beginning, have felt 
he did it. Um, everything that, you know, but then you start looking at the state's case and, you know, I wrote an article, I think it was, uh, a, a week before the closing, uh, the Thursday before they rested and basically argued that they had not made the case yet. That if I were sitting on the jury based on the evidence presented, I would not vote uh, to convict him. I think and, a lot of people changed their mind on yeah. Friday. Well, well, I, I got to say, yeah. I'm sure that went over well with your your readers. <laughs> well, it, it, yeah, and that's the sad thing is, you know, Jim Griffin, for example, did an amazing cross examination of the lead uh, slut agent David Owen, and you know, again, I don't think Owen was bad particularly. It's just that Griffin was just very. It was well epic. organized. He was on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, he did an amazing job, but you, you know, you go on social media and you compliment him or say something and then you start getting eaten alive by, by one side or the other. And, you know, you're right. People have, have, they've gotten in camps. Um, they don't want to look at things objectively. And, you know, again, you, you've got to do that, particularly if you're going to, if you're going to assign the label journalist to yourself. You've got to be able to look look at it objectively. And more importantly, you've got to be able to, at the very least, be willing to share all perspectives. And again, that's one of the things that my news outlet hasn't always done that, but I'm very proud of the direction that we've been going, uh, certainly recently and certainly in our coverage of this trial, just staying open to every possibility and letting everybody with a smart take share that take, again, whether, whether I happen to agree with it or not. Well, I want to give you credit for that, I because I think it's lazy reporting or lazy writing to just say guilty, he's a terrible person, blah, blah, blah. It's much more wise and useful to people to hear how it's being presented in court. And I, I, I give you mad props for that. So that's very cool. Hey, before we let well, you- The other thing is being there. And Seton, you know as well as I do, having been in there so so many days, and you cannot cover it without being there, because the the little things that you see, for example, when the lawyers will will raise a point, and then you can see one side scrambling, yeah, passing notes to each other, and you know one of the agents runs out of the room to fetch something. I mean, little things like that, or watching the family's reaction, or watching the jury watch the family, watching the jury watch Alec. Like, I mean, let's you, talk about the not, jury reactions. Like, I really want to talk about, because you put that in your week in review, and I was like, that was so smart. Because you can't see it. You, on TV, you don't get to look at the jurors. Yeah, and, and I got to say, I've been impressed with this jury, because I, and I, I'll give these numbers, and maybe you'll disagree, Seton, watching them, but I see five to six on there who are hyper attentive from the very beginning. They have been following every yes. bit of this. They're every leaning exchange. in. Oh, absolutely. They're, they've been dialed in from the beginning. And then I think you've got another four or so who are, I would say, selectively engaged. Um, if there's a, a key revelation or an emotional bit of testimony or something that you know sort of causes jaws to drop, like that, that new GM data, they, they'll dial in for that. And then you got one or two who I would say, you know, less charitably, let's just say they're uh, less engaged, <laughs> less engaged, but, um, I need caffeine. Yeah, I mean, okay. They might need some caffeine. Right. Yeah. We have received so many questions about Stephen Smith and whether we think that his case will ever be solved. And I don't have the answer to that question. 
but I thought you might be a good person to ask that. Yeah, I mean, I think the Stephen Smith case is one that has evolved over the course of the last, you know, year and a half since uh, it was opened officially by the state law enforcement division as a homicide investigation. And we've learned a lot over the last couple months related to that case, and and SLED has has indicated that they made significant progress. But from everything that I've seen, it's shaping up more uh, in the drug arena, not uh, necessarily the Murdoch arena. And I want to be clear, the speculation about the Murdochs was clearly enough to warrant the opening of a brand new investigation. And when you look at the Highway Patrol report um, following Stephen Smith's death, the Murdoch name is all over that report. Sure is. All over the report. And so when you start digging into it, I mean, they made the same observation we did, which was that it would be, you know, uh, malpractice not to not to fully look into it. But I do think that this is leading more in a direction of not a hate crime, not a Murdoch hit, but more in the direction of drugs. And again, whether or not they solve it, whether or not we get to a point where Stephen Smith's family gets the justice that that they deserve, I don't know. But um, I definitely think it's moving more toward that drug co- component than than a Murdoch hit. Uh, Will, folks, thanks, man. Uh, you can get it through uh, fitznews.com, but also you have, let's see, a uh, YouTube channel too. And what are, what's your handle on uh, Twitter? Uh, yeah, at, at fitznews, F-I-T-S-N-E-W-S. Okay, very cool, man. Thank you so much. We'll, uh, we'll see you down there. Yes, I will see you this week. I'll be there. See you then. Later, Thanks, Will. Will. Thank that you, was man. awesome. I liked it a lot. All right. Uh, through Matt Harris podcast at gmail.com. Sammy is an interesting email. Hi, Matt and Seton. I sent you this via Facebook as well. This is really not a question, more of a thought. I heard someone mention the jurors are not taking notes. I was a juror and for deliberation, the foreman of the jury. On the 2009 Carthage, North Carolina nursing home murder case, eight murdered. Trial was 2011. I believe the trial lasted six weeks. We were picked from a pool of jurors in a county, Stanley County, one hour away from Moore County, and drove via bus to and from Moore County every day. That is a crazy commitment. So I am shocked they were able to find a jury within the county. Second, without my notebook full of notes from every aspect of the trial to reference, review, and add my own notes, questions, etc., I do not feel like I would have been holding up my end of being a well-prepared juror when it came time for a verdict. Being a juror for that trial was probably one of the most challenging experiences in my life. After my experience, I had a new level of compassion for jurors, and I feel for this jury as this trial goes on. Just a little insight from a past juror of a pretty highly watched trial, Nothing like the one you are covering, but for 2011 in that area, pretty big. Uh, it was from Tammy. And uh, John Snyder did go through the pros and cons of jurors taking notes in episode 101. You can go back and hear that. But I'd love just to talk to her about what it was like being on a jury in a major murder trial like that. And we should point out, most of our reviews are positive. And if you like us, give us a positive review. Yes. But we, we do bring out some of these negative ones just because we, we take it all. Yes, and, and some have uh, really helped us become uh, a better at what we're doing. And again, I, I will say that I probably right now I'm getting 25 emails a day. 
Uh, me too. Facebook, I'm responding to the Facebook messages and I get so many every day. And I'm in court most days without a cell phone. So, yeah. And I was just down with COVID for four days. It was the worst. Boo, COVID, as if you need to hear it. Uh, I was planning on going down last week to the trial and the COVID hit. So hopefully this coming week, what is the date today? The 20th as we're recording this. Uh, later in the week, hopefully I'll be down for more of the trial. Uh, so there y'all go. Uh, reach out again. As I said, Matt Harris Podcast, gmail.com, Murdoch Podcast on Facebook. And we'll talk soon, friend. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? Or just a horrible accident? That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave four-year vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags, because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com